You are listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast, a podcast where a couple friends sit and talk around the fire after everyone else has gone to bed. Grab a drink and join us as we discuss everything from famous explorers, artificial intelligence, and what is the meaning of life. This is a little story about shipwrecks, clocks, stars, and politics. Some pretty dangerous things. We're going to talk about the longitude problem and how it got solved. Before we get into that, Mike, how are you doing? What are you drinking? I'm feeling pretty good. Drinking some nine branded uh, bourbon. And Nick, I am already completely fascinated and I cannot wait to hear. What about you, my friend? How are you and what are you drinking? I'm doing great. I'm super excited to talk about this because I feel like this should be in the history books or I mean, I guess it is, but this should be something we learn in school. And I just got a Gatorade for myself because I got stuff to do tomorrow. So the problem is navigation. How do ships, old, old wooden ships, Mike, how do they know where they're going and where they're at? Stars and sun and maps if they can find any or make any well i mean starting out seafaring navigation for the longest time people just sailed the coastline and eventually we started heading west east depending where you live making straight shots when we figured out we could use the stars to figure out where we were where our latitude was where we were in position on the earth just our north our east west we could we didn't know north south yet and so from there we got that was an increase in navigation and that that is what the sextant and stuff people used to figure out look at the sun at the center of the day and use the stars to figure out where they were at but we didn't know where we're at as we go up and down the globe how far you were from the equator because that's a little bit too hard to measure and the easiest way to measure your longitude was with the clock. Sailors would have a clock on the ship and they would reset it each day at noon and it would basically be how far off is it from how or they wouldn't reset it but at noon when the sun is at its highest point they would see what time their clock is and the difference between that is how far they are between noon in Greenwich or wherever they were coming from and that is how they would figure out how far away they are. Counting the time across the sea. Interesting. Exactly. So when you're in a different time zone, you know you're you're a certain you know you're a certain distance away from somebody else, but to a more exact. They wanted to be to a more exact point. The problem is at this time, clocks. Clocks were not accurate. Some of the most expensive clocks would be off by minutes every day. And not all sailors were sailing with the most expensive clocks. Some could be off by an hour a day. And so sailors predominantly used what was called dead reckoning. It was a combination of things to figure out where they were at. They used a compass and they used a rough speedometer to try and estimate how fast they were going. And so they can, and just knowing what direction they were going and kind of what the wind was doing, they just kind of basically guess where they were going. Eh, let's say educated guess. And these are in the best conditions, right? So the best 
conditions for clocks on land, they're still, and they don't experience rapid temperature changes. So when you're in a boat, it gets really hot, and then it gets cold. You're moving up and down with the waves. There's a lot going on. Salt water corrodes things, everyone knows that. It's not the ideal climate for a clock. In 1714, after a lot of mishaps, a English captain who was sailing back to port, and he was approaching port, he thought, and he sailed for four days through dense fog, wasn't able to verify his time, his position, or anything, and he thought he was about to hit port, but after the third day, one of his uh, deckhands and an under underling, not not even an officer, suggested they were at the wrong place based on his calculations and that they were about to run aground. And this is a severe, almost a mutiny. This isn't something that normally happened, that somebody this far beneath the captain would make a comment on their positioning. But the man thought that the danger was so grave that if he didn't say anything now, he would surely die. <laughs> he didn't want not. To, he did not want to die. And because he did that, he was hung. Oh, now I want them. the next day. <laughs> the next day, the ships ran aground and killed the remaining sailors and brought the captain to shore. The captain awoke on the shore, thinking that he was being saved, because a a young woman found him. She proceeded to stab him and take all his jewelry. Jesus Christ! What island was this? Pretty sure this was in England. <laughs> oh, the British and their knives. It never ends. So they they only know because she confessed at her deathbed that she did this because no one survived, obviously, and she had the rings, so they must check out. But... Every single navy at that time had lost ships, sailors, tons of riches. Literally, Spain lost a fleet of ships that the treasure was counted, or a ship that the treasure was counted in tons. Gold and silver and diamonds, tons of it. Not pounds, tons. Good old Spanish gold always seems to find the bottom of the ocean one way or the other. So they needed a problem. Well, they had a problem, <laughs> so they needed a solution. Are you sure you're not drinking today, Nick? Too many puns, Mike. Kill my brain. <laughs> so the British Parliament offered a reward, and they titled it the Longitude Act. And the Longitude Act was passed in 1714. And as time goes on, it would be amended because things needed to be specified and whatnot. But this was the beginning, and it offered... A hierarchy of rewards. So the third pri- third place prize of 10,000 pounds, which is 1.46 million in our dollars, of someone who could determine longitude at sea with an error not greater than one degree of longitude, which is 60 nautical miles at the equator. I think this is important to note. If you're off one degree and you go 100 miles... If you're off by an inch, you're you're off by a mile. Like it's that that's a degree on the open sea means the world of difference. And then another fifteen thousand if pounds if the error was not greater than forty minutes, 
and 20,000, if not greater than half a degree. That's a high order. Yep. And obviously, and that's, so the grand prize would be about $3 million in our money. Everybody wanted to get that money. There was a lot of different theories of how to do this. A lot of people took to the stars. Astronomers thought that they had this one in the bag. They were recording, oh, if this if these stars are this distance from each other, then you're at this place. If they're this distance, you're at this place. Or when the moon's this far from this on this day, this is where you're at, which is a lot of work to compile all that. But that's a little bit more reasonable. You know there are some unreasonable ones out there. <laughs> the two most ridiculous solutions, the first was probably the most ridiculous. A dog would be placed on the boat, and the dog, a piece of, like, some skin from the dog would be left on the mainland. And at noon, every day, the skin that was taken from the dog would be put in a solution called that, the point of the solution was that it would hurt the dog on the boat. And by dumping this piece of dog into the solution, it would supposedly hurt the dog on the boat no matter how far away in the world it was. And because they drew at noon, the boat would know exactly what time was noon and how far away they were from the mainland. I don't like this. They're hurting a dog, and it's also really dumb. <laughs> so, yes, part of the problem is, uh, for one, that's not... It doesn't work That's not that how way. this works. <laughs> <laughs> the other problem is the sailors couldn't determine if the dog was yelping because it was in pain or barking for some other reason. So they had to figure out which bark was the noon bark. Oh, no. They get a, are they, do they do a control to figure out what type of bark is a sad bark versus what's a bark at a random thing? Yeah, I don't think they went that deep into it because I think it was more just snake oil. Some people tried it, obviously, um, but it didn't win the prize. The other one is a little bit more of a stretch, but at the same time more feasible? Not really, though. They were going to line a fleet of ships that stretched the Atlantic, and these ships would be anchored to the bottom because by our best estimates... We figured the bottom of the Atlantic was 300 feet deep. <laughs> Don't even have time to explain how wrong that is. <laughs> They're off. Just just a smidge. Just a smidge there. And these ships would just anchor there and shoot their cannons at noon so that all the ships would know when noon is. Now, one of the problems, besides not being able to anchor your ships in the middle of the Atlantic, is pirates and supplying all these people that being said for a long time this is probably the predominant idea uh can i also throw off uh throw out another reason why this is a bad idea yeah uh if you start firing in say london at noon and you go across the entire atlantic ocean and each one setting off by the previous cannon it will not be it they'll be off by like hours because each person setting it off, that's not a 
that 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 they're still gonna be off by at least thirty minutes to hours. It's, it's just not it's not really feasible. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons that one wasn't gonna work. God, the amount of gunpowder being spent daily to fire that many cannons. The amount it would cost to create a fleet of ships. Why not? To stretch the Atlantic. Just make a land bridge. It'll be fine. Probably would have been better, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if, yeah. That's, I don't know how that's going to work. So someone had to come through, and that person kind of came from nowhere. You know, we there's some big names involved in this. I mean, probably the most famous Galileo Galilei. He actually, using the stars and moon determined a really accurate way to do surveying, but it was only accurate on land. And because of that, he got a lot of money from the king, the French king, because, well, he invented an accurate way to survey their land ownership. And he famously said, I'm losing more land to astronomers than my enemies. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But John Harrison was born was born in Yorkshire. He was the oldest in his family and very humble beginnings. I mean, we don't really know a lot about this guy because just wasn't uh, you know, wasn't wasn't in high society. So there's not much to go around. We know his father was a carpenter. And because of that, Harrison also became a carpenter and spent a lot of his time with wood. He started working for a church, and uh, he, when his father gave him a watch, and some people think that this is a legend. Again, we don't know enough about his life to say it, say it's true or not. The legend is his father gave him a watch, and he spent a lot of time listening to it and studying, figuring out how it's worked, how it worked. Um, he was also another legend, so that he was given a book and went about watches and went through the whole book and made a bunch of annotations. And then uh, he got a job to make a new clock for a park in uh, Lincolnshire. And unlike other clocks at the time, he decided to make this one completely out of wood. Now this is a huge change of pace because pretty much everything was made out of metal. And the problem with the metal clocks is they required lubrication like a lot of lubrication, and it had to be set each day. This clock that he made was pretty incredible. He made it out of various pieces of wood, but it was so accurate. It was off by a few seconds each day. Some of the best clocks in the world at the time were off by minutes. And this carpenter from nowhere just goes and makes a clock for this park on like a shoestring budget. <laughs> let the let the rednecks, the the workers, the blue collar guys figure it out because they will. I mean, the first clock that he made worked for two hundred years. Jesus, and it's all made out of wood for two hundred years. That's impressive. The only time it stopped is when they stopped it to refurbish it, and then it continued running. Then Harrison went to go meet uh, uh, another watchmaker because everyone's like, "You gotta." This, this famous watchmaker, George Graham, who's this famous watchmaker, and everyone's like, you need to meet this kid. And the guy was like, whatever. 
But after talking to Harrison, he's like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. And they talked for, I think, like 12 hours or something that first day. Harrison finally left Graham's place with a bunch of money, and Graham recited to him the longitude problem and told that the British Parliament has this huge reward. He thinks his clocks can do it, and he thinks he has a good chance of doing it because his clocks are so accurate. He gave him a bunch of money and said, pay it back whenever. He was that confident in him. Hey, gave a young man a shot. So Harrison went to work. And in 1730, he designed his first clock, H1. And it was a pretty big clock. It was about as about the size of a closet. And it revolved completely on weights and counterbalances and springs. There wasn't, uh, wasn't like the large grandfather clocks of the day. Because the problem with the large grandfather clocks on the open ocean is that, well, the bottom... Gravity is pulling it down, but sometimes other forces are moving you left and right and all over the place, so they would lose their time pretty easily. He presented it to the to members of the Royal Society who brought it to the Board of Longitude. Now, there was a board who was supposed to dispense the prize money, but so far no prize had ever gotten, or no solution had ever gotten close, so the board had never actually met. So it kind of had to go word of mouth to get to these guys. <laughs> you said a little committee. They never made the committee. So in 1736, Harrison and H1 sailed to Lisbon, which isn't exactly where uh, the there's specific requirements it had to hit. It had to go to the New World basically and back to get the prize money, but this is a test voyage. There was some problems going out. The clock lost time, headed out, but it performed well on the return trip. And several times, uh, Harrison told the captain that his calculations were wrong and that Harrison's were right. And every time Harrison's clock was, and his because of his clock's accuracy, his idea on the accuracy of their position was right, the captain was super impressed and wanted to buy it. Harrison took it back because he had some more work to do. Harrison also got super seasick when he was out. <laughs> Good old carpenter out on the high seas. The board was kind of impressed, so they decided they'd give him $5,000, and they'd continue to give him $5,000 for a while as he continued to develop his clocks. In 1737, he developed H2, and... In 1741, he finally finished it. Three years of building and testing. At that time, Britain was fighting with Spain because it's Britain. that's what Britain does. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't want to risk sending their new instrument from a carpenter that they love so much out into the open ocean in a fate worse than death, not being lost to the ocean, but being lost to the Spanish. So... It didn't matter because as he was working, he thought he had, well, he had discovered a design flaw. So he decided he'd make another one, and the board gave him some more money. He spent 17 years working on the third clock, H3, and it did also pretty well. At this time, though, the working on it, he kind of 
came up with a smaller clock. Each of his clocks got smaller and smaller as time went on. Well, I guess H1, H2 got bigger. Then his third clock got smaller. He wanted it to be able to fit easily into a ship's uh, captain's quarters. And so then he's decided to make a small one, almost pocket watch size. And this was a thing of beauty. H4. Just, a, yep. just out of curiosity, are these all being made out of solely wood or are these a mixture of materials or hull steel? It's, uh, they're a mixture of materials. So uh, it's wood and metal for the most part in certain places, but the, a lot, the gears are all wooden, so they're not to be lubed. But this, the materials for H4 is uh, pretty special. So H4... Is supposed to be a captain's watch. It's 5.2 inches diameter, and it's the most complex watch at the time. Coiled springs inside a brass barrel with, uh, I think there's some wooden gears. There's also diamonds inside. It's a, a very expensive watch. And this H4, which in all the experimentations exceeded what would be needed um it went to it went to uh, jamaica and his son took it out and the watch was tested and the total transatlantic voyage um i think it was three seconds slow that's it three seconds that is impressive so yes and then then on the way back it was five seconds slow which is basically is 1.25 minutes or one mile off, which is higher than the highest standard for the Longitude Act. So he should should be in line to get it, right? Well, that's not how this story is going to end. Oh boy, the British are going to do him dirty. One of the people appointed to the board at this time was, Rev- was Reverend Neville Maskeline, and he was supposed to test the watch. Neville, whose good friend w- was an astronomer, and had some, uh, some, he wasn't in the runnings, but he was working with other people on solar charts, moon charts, sun, sky charts, to or star charts, to determine longitude, and he didn't think, they didn't say engineers, they'd call them carpenters they thought these people these mechanics were beneath the work of an astronomer and that a watch is no way to determine time <laughs> where you're going so neville made it extremely difficult for harrison to get his money and even to get it get this knowledge out into circulation harrison or neville decided that he would test his harrison's watch not on the ocean, not on a certified test. He would just test it on a fake voyage in his office. Harrison insisted that he be with the watch to make sure no ill will came of it, which obviously Neville declined. Amazingly, in the test that Neville did, the watch was off by minutes, on the like mul- multiple minutes on the way out, and it fared better on the way back, but not enough to... It wasn't within the target of what the Longitude Act called for. Somehow, Neville's test in the 
in his uh, office, the clock was off way more than it was crossing the Atlantic. How could that happen, Nick? We don't know how that happened. But Harrison got H4 back, repaired it, and gave it to James Cook. Captain Cook, as many people know him, he's a pretty famous captain, did a lot of sailing. Is this a, he took it across. Is this the same Captain Cook who found Hawaii? Yep, and was killed there. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, but he used H4 on his second and third voyages using lunar distance on the first method, and he had nothing but praise for the watch. He said that it made it remarkably accurate, and copies, and he had copies made, or people were calling for copies, and other people started copying Harrison's design. Uh, or sorry, he took a copy of it, not Harrison's. He took a copy of H4 on his voyage, and he had nothing but praise for it. Other people started buying them. And the thing is, as people started making these copies, the cost started plummeting so that many people started using them. The problem is initially the cost was so great. I mean, obviously the first one has like diamonds in it's it. A prototype. It's a yeah. Pretty high price point, but, you know. Not dying. Many, <laughs> more The more people you get out of problem, people were able to make it cheaper. And there were a lot of knockoffs too. As to be expected, you know, at this, we're not far from the time of people, uh, I mean, this is the same time, like I said, people were herding dogs and figuring out when the dog barked, that's noon. So, yeah, obviously people were making knockoffs, but eventually people started making more affordable copies that got into the hands of sailors. However... John Harrison in his life would never receive the money, the th estimated $3 million, because, well, I don't know, bureaucracy, corruption, whatever you want to call it. That sounds about right. But the money was given to his kids, and his his son continued uh, trying to get, get the money and carrying on his dad's legacy. And Neville, um, yeah, so... All the clocks that Neville confiscated to test them, basically, he kept in his office, and they really weren't seen again. And it uh, that was Harrison really was torn apart about not seeing his his watches again. Literally, his life work. I mean, he spent like thirty years making these watches. That that's just disgusting. Just. To take away a man's entire entire life, but they would turn up again sometime after World War One. Rupert T. Gould of the British Royal Navy found the clocks in a pretty shitty state and started repairing them. He did this without being paid, and it took him I think it took him like five years to to restore all the clocks. Hell of a hobby, and yeah. Some people are upset because, well, he didn't really know what he was doing. He just wanted to restore some naval history. He started working backwards. He started from the uh, H1 and then to H4 so he could understand them better. 
and but he got them all back in working condition. Well, except for the fourth H four. Um, H four, unlike H one, two, and three, does require oil so that it can't uh, run or you'll continue to damage it. But other than that, H one, two, and three clocks designed or seventeen hundreds still ticking away. I mean, there's cars made. They don't make them like they used I mean, to. <laughs> fuck, I have a watch from when I was a kid that doesn't even work anymore. So that being said, that wasn't a $5,000 watch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, John Harrison, he continued to work on stuff. He worked on uh, tuning systems, and he, he's really into music. And, uh, I mean, he he's a pretty famous clockmaker. I didn't know the history of clocks was so interesting. We, we might do a whole podcast on that but john harrison figured out the the longitude problem by designing a clock that could withstand the seas the only thing it couldn't withstand is bureaucracy thanks for listening Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram 